Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich man Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have triggering foods. Like, I will taste something and it brings back such a sensory memory for me that it's shocking. It sets me back to, like, like takes my breath away because I realize there's this moment of this and not realizing it until I have to sit there and process through and be like, okay, this is why this tastes familiar. Welcome to Get Down with K-Town. I'm your host, Esther Choi. Hey, guys. There's one topic I've wanted to cover for a bit, and we'll probably cover it a few times throughout this series. It's Korean adoptees. I mean, it's inevitable to talk about, as many of my friends are Korean adoptees, and it's a topic that we can't stray away from. Here's why. Over the past six decades, at least 200,000 Korean children have been adopted into families in more than 15 countries, with majority being the U.S. Obviously, I've known this personally through tons of friends and just being Korean myself, it's impossible not to know. When I studied abroad at Seoul at Iwa Women's University for a semester in college, I've met a ton of Korean adoptees from all over the world who is also studying abroad, hoping for a connection to South Korea and to either look for their birth families or figure out their identity and connect with other adoptees. I've heard some incredible stories. And even now, if you just research online about the long history of Korean adoptees, it goes very deep. Now that I think about it, probably why I have so many friends that are Korean adoptees is because most of this happened in the 70s and 80s, which is pretty much my generation, hence my age group, especially when you go to Korea, there are now tons of adoptees that are living in Seoul, thousands from all over the world. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Today, I'm here in Atlanta to hear one particular story, a Korean adoptee herself, a fellow host at iHeartMedia, Samantha McVeigh. Hi. Hi, Samantha. So Samantha is the host of the show, Stuff Mom Never Told You. And before we dive into the topic. Samantha, can you briefly tell our listeners what your show is about? Absolutely. Yes, I am a host with Stuff Mom Never Told You with Annie Reese, and our show is all about feminism and intersectionality of what feminism is and telling stories and telling ideas behind different concepts from 
topics about bisexuality and how it affects women to talking about BDSM and women in that industry, as well as we talked about trauma in the Me Too era and what that looks like today, doing a full-scale um, conversation between the beginning, which is having, we had a woman come in and tell her story, a victim come in and tell her story, then we had a researcher come and talk about rape kits, then we had an investigator talking about what it looks like to have empathetic interviewing, all the way into having an episode with us being live with a therapist um, talking about our own trauma. So we've had a gamut of different things. And then we can talk also, we talked about women in movies, um, badass women in movies, whether they are the heroes or the anti-heroes. And we will talk. Let's see, we have features about book clubs with women featured to it or those who identify as women or non-binary. We're very inclusive and we just want to talk about the subjects of today and how that is still important that we have these conversations. So that's what my show's about. Amazing. So you go from being lighthearted to like very deep. Yes, to, yes. I mean, I feel like today's topic will be a pretty deep one. Right. Just because, I mean, because it is. Yeah. Thinking about the history of the whole era of adoption and why it happened. Do you know the history of why there's so many adoptees? Right. So according to one of the conversations and the organization that I was adopted from, which was Holt International, um, they had a beginning where the woman who created this specific orphanage, and she's created an orphanage, during the war, during the Korean War, there was a lot of babies that were produced through illicit affairs, we can say, yeah. however, whatnot. And due to that, there were a lot of mixed-race babies. Korean white or yeah, Korean black. so interracial children. And due to that, they were not accepted into the family, whether it had to do with honor system, whether it's just an acceptance of being dishonored through how they came about. Also, you know, it's you know, very, they, like, cultural in Korea. Right. So because of that, there was a lot of children literally abandoned on the streets and a little um, somehow all of those uh, produced, again, children that had no homes, and this woman who was, I guess, had come over there at that point in time doing mission trips or whatever, whatnot, um, decided that she felt like this was her calling to raise these children, and she ended up adopting herself, I think, like... Eight children. Is it eight? Is it, is say, it Holt? Yes. You, yeah, yes, it's eight yes, children. I was going to one with 11. Yep. Um, eight children. So because of that level, that's where then they, of course, had the sad stories <laughs> on the different news shows and media. And that's how I was adopted, essentially. My mom watched a TV show with this highlighting this woman and what her works were. And then going from there. She decided here, to. Yeah, that her calling was to have to adopt a child, a child from Korea. And that was her intent. As a mother, I guess. Okay. Yeah. And you're not talking about your birth mother, obviously. You're no, talking yes. about your mother that raised you. Yes. Growing up in the South right. with a Southern accent. I have I definitely have an accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, a non-Korean name, but with a Korean face, and you have a very specific visual identity, right. obviously. Right, right. How was that? So I think there's a lot of different factors because growing up and in that time frame, I knew I was different. But being told that... I'm accepted because I'm with a specific type of family that had notoriety, essentially, in that small community. I was kind of protected. So even though— In I, Atlanta, right here. So I was actually further from Atlanta, about okay. an hour and a half north in the mountains of Georgia. We are at the foothills of the Appalachian Trail. Like, yeah, that that's how far up. Okay. Um, very small town. Literally the only person of color in that town. Okay. especially in that school, outside of some of the immigrant families coming from Guatemala or Mexico who were already kind of... But in terms of Asian, you were the I only was one the only with one a, at that point in time. Only yes. one with an Asian face. Yes, especially in the schools in my generation. I think there were other people there that I just didn't know about, didn't you know have any connections to until later in life. Um, I think there was one other girl who came in in my middle school time frame, and she was half Filipino, and I met her, and I was like, oh, yeah. cool, hey, hey, oh, what's up? And you kind of look like me. And then the other part to that was there was a shame factor in having someone similar to me because I desperately needed to feel like I needed to be white to fit mm -hmm. in. So it's a whole mm -hmm. different, like, breakdown. And honestly, it wasn't until probably the last 10 years that I really and have been struggling with trying to find my identity as an Asian woman, trying to figure out what that is for me. And um, 
trying to figure that out in the world that I grew up in, especially in today's politics, is very obvious that my, myself and my family are two sides. Before we dive into that, <laughs> right. we want to start from the beginning. Sure. How old were you when you were adopted so into a family? So I was turning seven when I came into the U.S. So you were essentially an older yes. child. Yes, I, um, I was placed in the orphanage when I was four, five. I uh, lived there for a couple of years. Uh, and before I, that, your birth mother I was, was actually with you. my grandmother, birth grandmother. Okay. So I was pretty quickly, whatever issues may have been gone down, from what I understand, uh, my mother and my father, biological mother and father, divorced. Uh, and she got remarried. And typically within Korean traditions, stepchildren do not stay with no. their not families. With a, not, especially not with a mother. Right. You can't even be a legal like citizen without... Right having like a father's name. Right. So at that point, I was given to the care of my grandmother, who at that point in time did keep me for a couple of years and raised me for a couple of years, but found it too hard and too stressful. And so then I was placed in an orphanage at that point in time that had connections Mm -hmm. um, with the International Adoption Agency. So you were at at the orphanage for at least three years Mm -hmm. before you found a family to adopt you. So about uh, two to three years, I'm going to estimate, because honestly, those time frames are so smeared in my head yeah. that I can't quite remember of course, of all course. of the like timelines. Yes. Just because some of our listeners might not know, obviously, as an older child trying to get adopted, you were one of the lucky ones. Right. Very, very lucky. Absolutely. Because there are thousands and thousands right. of children that were in these orphanages. Right. And if you're older, it's just you have no chance. Right. The um, time with in the orphanage was actually traumatic. Not necessarily. Well, actually, there were several things. But a lot of that also had to do with the fact that the older children that were there were very angry and very aggressive, uh, aggressive and very territorial, and rightly so. Also with the fact that... <laughs> There's a lot of mishaps that happen, and obviously a lot of abuse. Yes, and com- and then that would be a conversation to have. But the things that are opened up, and then the older you get, the more likely you're going to succumb to that environment anyway. So growing up, as the small amount of time that I did, it made absolute sense that these these la- these girls were really really angry girls, and so a dramatic part of my growing up was trying to figure out how to survive that in itself. So I was, I think, the entire time that I was there, I think I was the third person to be adopted. Okay. And uh, every single one of us, I think, were adopted out of the country. Most being in the U.S. Right. And so you got adopted into your American family. And did you have any siblings? Uh, there. So again, that's kind of one of those conversations. I remember an older brother, but I can't quite place anything about oh, oh, that. in Korea. In Korea, okay. yeah. So in my, actually, I do yeah. have three older siblings today. They are biological children to my adopted family. So I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. But between myself and the youngest sibling, who is my brother, we're only seven months apart. Okay. So you got adopted into this family. And how was it growing up with your family? So obviously, there's a lot of good and a lot of bad, I think, for the first year, was just trying to communicate it, I, from what I was told. And I do remember a lot of things happening, but my mother almost lost it a few times because the fighting between myself and the younger brother was so intense. And because there was no way to communicate with me what was happening, it was a whole kind of a breakdown, yeah. especially uh, due to communication. So it was a really interesting time. There was a lot of conversations for me in trying to figure out how to fit in especially to a family that's already been established before I got there. So you were the this, youngest. Yes, I was the youngest, and they've already been established for the past seven years as this family. Okay, I can't not ask this question, but why did they decide to adopt? Right. So my mom, for whatever reason, knew without a doubt, after, I guess, watching this, that she would adopt an older child. That was always her intent, okay. knowing that that was one of the biggest needs. So that's, that's kind of— incredible. Yeah, so it really was the luck of the draw because essentially when it comes down to it, she had wanted to adopt before I was born. Um, but because they were so young and because all of these things, they were advised to foster first. Mm-hmm. So for a while, they fostered over 100 kids, I want to say, before they Here, adopted like, me in the U.S. Yes, so American— yes. American children, children. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when everything kind of fell into place is when I was actually at the orphanage, yeah. And then why did they decide on a Korean child? Was it that commercial yes, that they watched? Yes, it was that specific, and talking about Miss Holt and her mission. That was the very reason that they felt like they should adopt. It wasn't necessarily um, about just a child. It was about a Korean child from this uh, organization, essentially. That's 
it's crazy how yeah, that works, right, actually. Right, right, right. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so growing up in the mountains of Georgia, right. as the only... Asian-faced kid. Can you go a little bit right. deeper on that? So uh, it was a lot of 
Was There's that hard so many, making friends? Were people it, making fun it was of you? Not, like, like I said, I was one of the luckier ones that I got accepted in because my family was sort of known. Um, also, I'm adorable. Look at me. Come on. <laughs> You're come so on. cute. And I was going to say, if you see my little <laughs> pictures from way back when, yeah, I'm too cute <laughs> not to like. Come on, guys. But yeah, no, they. it was not that hard for me to find make friends. Uh, and I think a lot of that had to do with the kind of not a fetishism necessarily, but a, a kind of curiosity of, hey, she's different. You look different. Let's talk to you. Maybe you're, oh, you are cool. So cool, they, cool. they were intrigued by you. Yes, yes. And also you have to remember, I still spoke Korean while I started kindergarten. You used to, yes. do you still speak Korean now? No, I don't. So, so it got whole, all lost. It got lost. I even took three semesters of Korean trying to relearn, and I cannot grasp that language to the point my teacher Bless her heart, who came from Seoul to teach at the University of Georgia. And I said, bless your heart. Can we talk about how <laughs> Southern that was? Uh, <laughs> right. I just said it. But she came to from South Korea to teach at the University of Georgia. And she gave me excuses. She's like, you're an adoptee. I get it. Whatever. And I was like, mm. she's like, when, you know, you were a baby. And I was like, no, I was seven. She goes, oh. <laughs> she was you just should still like, know something. Right. She was yeah. really kind of shocked. And I was like, I don't, I don't get it. I've been trying to learn. And I'm just struggling. So, And I was literally the second worst in that class outside of a white girl. Did you just like block it from your memory? There's Is that so, why? A lot so of traumatized? It, a lot of it has to do with trauma. And, a, and like I've had therapy upon therapy. Therapy is good for you, just in case y'all need to know. It's great. Get it. Do it. Upon trying to figure out what is this? Why am I like this? Why can't I go past this hurdle? Because even when I speak, even though I had that Southern accent, there's moments that I trip up on words because of the Korean dialect is very different from, so like the L and, L and the R's, I still mix that up, even though I haven't spoken Korean in over 30 years. It's some kind of like hidden yeah. thing in your brain. But I'm amazing when it comes to Spanish. I can pick shit up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I can pick things up pretty quickly on other languages. Just not Korean. That definitely has to do yeah, with some sort of like a lot of traumatic trauma, yeah. trauma. So a lot of that to say is growing up, and my parents and I have talked about it lots of times, I should have gone to therapy. I didn't. I was doing okay. Um, and I did. Like I said, I adjusted really well. I always grew up understanding that I should be grateful and that not necessarily that no anyone told me I owed anything, but feeling like I owed something because I was one of the few that left. I was one of, one of the few that was old enough to remember all the why, oh, thank God this happened. But yeah, I think growing up was really interesting because I did. I had to try to find myself in a place where no one knew. How, or I had no mentors. I had no one to talk to. I didn't know exactly what it felt like and not realizing that I wasn't white um, and that, yes, I, I would sit and watch TV and sit and watch things that the real world outside of my small town that I'm like, man, I wish I could have that, but I didn't have that access. And being like, man, it would be easier if I was white. I remember coming home being teased by dumb kids, mm -hmm. as we know, and my mom, again, bless their hearts, telling me, oh, they're just jealous when actually they're racist, mm -hmm. and I just didn't understand that. What, what were the kind of things that they were saying to oh, tease you? Oh, you know, the whole Chinese, uh -huh, slanted chink. eyes, like, uh, okay. yes, all of those things coming at me with slanted eyes, coming at me screaming like It's always chong. the yeah. way you look. Yeah, yeah, and pretending like I don't know English. Um, it got really weird as I was growing up dating. <laughs> Cause oh, I remember yeah, I'm sure that was you, Again, crazy. predominantly white. There were no black people in my community not even, growing up. Yeah. No, yeah. not at all. Um, and I remember someone talking. We came to Atlanta to do a competition of sorts. This dude, we were all like just frothing at the mouth over him. He was a beautiful, beautiful black boy. We were just like... Black man, we were like, yes, he is beautiful. Let's go talk to him. <laughs> and of course, our um, white guy friends were racist as hell, talking uh -huh. about all these things about them. And I'm getting offended because I'm like, hey, <laughs> y'all like, know I'm not white, right? right? Like I'm a, I'm a different. But they're race. just like treating you like you right. were white. And then when I would say something, I remember there was this girl who was trying to be one of the boys was like, you know, I don't believe in interracial relationships either. And she's like, there's just something, something. And I kind of looked at her because a week before she was trying to set me up with her cousin. I went, you do know that I'm not white. And if I date your cousin, that's interracial. Wow. Which she yeah. had to kind of stop talking. Her first face turned red. But in, in understanding that I don't fit in this 
I don't fit in that, and I am definitely a model minority in their eyes without them knowing what that is. Because, so you were, like, confused. Yeah, so a lot of confusion trying to grow up, understanding that this is wrong, the way my family, my friends are talking about black people is completely wrong, but in their minds it's just, oh, you know, we're just talking to our friends. That whole, like, modern racism yeah. and the microaggressions that are there, that I'm, I'm seeing it because I'm very aware I'm not white. And, and it's kind of one of those things and growing just forget. up. forget. Yeah. And growing up and trying to be, trying to hide. Like, that's that was part of the thing. It's like shrinking away, not only as a woman, but as a and woman of color. And it makes you color. self-conscious. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I will say, like, again, I definitely grew up knowing that my parents love me and support me and see them at, see me as a daughter. And, and I, I love them to death. But the, growing up and be, becoming very aware that we were slowly separating, that I no longer believe the same things because my experiences were different from them already. Uh, whether I'm getting looked at because I'm coming in with a white family, I'm getting looked at with questions when I'm, you know, about my name even. So it was a, it's a whole interesting dynamic to try to adjust. And then coming into my adulthood and trying to be an advocate and trying to be someone who's socially conscious and trying to speak awareness about women of color and intersectionality, as well as the fact that I realize as an Asian woman, I'm privileged as well. Even though I'm still one of the ones that are affected, I'm more privileged in that scope of things and trying to come out and have a conversation about what does this look like in reality, and what does this look like for an advocate, and then not, and then feeling shame because I can't find my identity and I don't know my identity myself. That's probably the reason why you decided to do social work, and that's how you came across your profession, right? And why you're such an advocate, and probably your goal is to be a spokesperson, right? For right these topics and issues. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided? Okay, this is like what I'm gonna do. Right. I think growing up, I didn't know what I could do, and I just knew that I couldn't. It wasn't the norm. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor, any of those things. Um, for my family, the education was not the forefront. Not, not that they discouraged it. They did not. They were so proud for the things that I've done. But my parents themselves didn't go to college, and so it's not one of those things that they think is priority. Not all of the siblings went to college and, and everybody's great and fine. As in fact, those who didn't go to college make more money than me when I was a social worker and I was very upset about this. It's like, I don't understand. Uh, but I came in to college knowing that the one thing I needed to do was help and whatever that looked like. The one thing I had to do is I had to give back and I had to give back to those who couldn't do it for themselves. Again, I came up growing up knowing that I owed something. You always have that feeling of wanting to give back. Yes. I always had the feeling that I had to. Because it was just an obligation. This is what I know the truth is. And the truth of this is I am lucky. There are others, and they need help too. It's kind of one of those things. And going into social work, my passion has always been working for children and women. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's kind of the thing that I grew up doing. I worked as a child abuse investigator for a couple of years. And then I wor- I've worked as a placement specialist, which gets, gives treatment to kids who are in the juvenile system. So it's definitely something that I, I have always been very, very passionate about. And no, I knew nothing else in my life, honestly, coming into this world knowing that I had to fight for something because Again, I've seen too many people who can't fight for themselves or are not able to speak for themselves. And so it's kind of one of those things that I have this privilege. Now how can I use it? I have to use it. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, 
It's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About $6 million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. How about your identity? I know. That's the question. That is the question question? because that's the most important thing because right now, how do you identify yourself? Have you tried to go back and figure out your identity? Because this is like always a thing with a lot of my Korean adoptive friends. It's always about like going back and figuring out your identity. And that's that's a really big question. For me, it's kind of, I'm very analytical, obviously. I think that's part of being social work all all Mm -hmm. the time, analyzing everything, which my friends and family love, by the way. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I just kind of keep going back in. I don't know how to be what I am. A lot of that has to do with, there's a little bit of hostility when it comes down to every race it doesn't matter so it's kind of like I'm not white but I'm supposed to be grateful for the opportunities that the white people gave me I'm Asian but yet I've never grown up grown up and don't understand Asian culture as well as I should so the minute maybe a little angry too right and the minute I say that I'm I'm, I can't speak Korean I I was graced by white people I've been dismissed immediately they're like 
oh, you're, oh, okay. Yeah. And that's kind of the end of that conversation. Yep. And then even in, the, like, obviously, I'm not black, so I'm not <laughs> part of that community either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is what it is. Who am I? Yeah, it really has been a question of, okay, so I'm sitting here talking about taking your identity, being your voice, and being bigger, and and representing something and then you can like put it upon yourself exactly so it's kind of like i but i don't know what that looks like and even when it comes down to when i am grateful of the opportunities i have been i'm bitter that i can't understand what my ethnicity is about I'm, i'm a little bitter on that and my parents again they tried but being isolated in a small town in the mountains there's nothing they could do. They, I think they did. Take, they did. They took me to a picnic that was hosted by the adoption agency, and it was apparently a great success. But because it was so far away and they had so many children, it was a one-time thing. Yeah. And they really did try. But because of that, I lost that. And, of course, again, with that came the shame factor of I don't want to be Asian. I know what I really want to be is white because I'm inundated in this culture yep. that says this is the best way to be. And Let's be honest. Yeah, great. That would be awesome. Yeah. White is great right now, right? Um, and that's kind of one of those conversations that I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with myself because I don't know what I can represent fully without feeling like I'm faking shit. So that was when you were growing up. But what about like right now? And have you ever tried to go back to right. your Korean identity? So right now, like, again, I tried in college and draw, like, I'm going to learn Korean. I want to I want to be a part of this conversation. I want to I wanna know about myself. Um, and even now, again, as an adult, I dig deep. But I, a lot of the problems for me is the trigger and the PTSD that comes from the trauma that has happened in Korea makes me very, very anxious and to the point that it stops me. So even, like, trying to research, because I went through a bout of researching my own name, my own history, like, it came out with nothing. But I have this fear of going, like, I I have a conversation and thought process, like, I should try this. But also there is that level of, I should be grateful. Why am I looking into this? But being grateful and wanting to know what your history is and what your background is like two different things, right? Right, it is. And you know what? Like a lot of my Korean adoptive friends, there's, there's, I wouldn't say two kinds, but like two different, um, I guess, thought process or two different types of people. There's some that are like super eager that go to Korea, find out and figure out like where the family and meet the family and go through this whole process, which is very personal and emotional right and almost like invasive emotionally right. if you think about it and then there's this other side that probably grew up i mean it has nothing to do with like how they grew right. up but they just they just clam up mm-hmm. and they just can't like there's right. there's one particular friend that even at the thought of like korean culture she starts bawling right do and, you know uh, what I mean? Yeah, well, absolutely, because I think I've gone beyond that because that's where I was. And again, this has a lot to do uh, just memories of things that were traumatic. Again, for me, I do have a lot of trauma based in Korea. I have a lot of trauma based in the orphanage. I have a lot of trauma based on an abusive biological family. So there was definitely, there's a lot of negativity and that like anxiousness that comes over me. That's what kind of does put a barrier for me to try to, to go there. I mean... There's still parts of my head. I'm like, this could help, but this could be like the end all, disastrous, right? So there's this whole level of where do I want to go? How it's do I want to go about? And again, therapy's wonderful, people. <laughs> um, and that's one of the big things that I have to talk through a lot because I went through probably three or four therapists, um, intensive therapists, trying to get to that root of the PTSD and the triggering. Because obviously, social work, I would get triggered often. Often because of similar stories to my uh, families or clients. And trying to unpack that has been such a problem in general and like the way it has affected me emotionally and mentally, all of that, that it is. It's terrifying for me to try to figure out that truth. Knowing that I can't learn Korean (laughs) because there's some type of mental block trying to protect me from something also pushes back like, oh shit, do I really, really want to know because the things that I do remember are not pretty. Yeah. So how far do you want to go there? Because you were an older child, we have like these specific types of memories connected to the Korean culture. But also, obviously, there's this draw. Right. Right? Right. You, you, You can't, escape that it's true like everything when it comes to Korean culture I will tell you even with food um, 
I have triggering foods. Like I will taste something and it brings back such a sensory memory for me that it's shocking. Like it, oh it sets me back to like, like takes my breath away. Because I realized, holy fuck, I remember. there's this moment mm-hmm. of this and not realizing it until I have to sit there and process through and be like, okay, this is why this tastes familiar. This is why this. And I stayed away from it from a, for a long time. Because it's traumatizing. Because it was traumatizing. Because like, well, I'm like, if I take the wrong step, of course, again, it's, I've come, like I'm about to be 40 this year, woohoo, um, coming into that, I've grown a lot and learned a lot and have found steps to calm myself, to backtrack in those moments. Um, but it does. It's a, it's a fear factor of what the hell am I about to walk into, what memory is about to open, because I've had moments even in college, even like five years ago, where I'm, I'm laid out All for of a, a sudden, day. you're just yeah, like, like... And I can't, I can't be touched. Don't talk to me. Don't look at me. So it's just like a whole different level of what am I willing to face? What can I face right now emotionally? What am I willing to face... Uh, Socially, because again, it feels like it's a betrayal to my adopted family to a certain extent. Um, and then, what am I willing to face as a professional, like as a social worker then and now as a person who speaks for hopefully an identity, not for completely, but with and, and representing of a community in itself? So it's kind of like, oh shit, oh, man. here we go, what do we do? It's just like taking it one step. Right. At a time. Right. And it is. It's a whole level of, okay, what am I ready to face? Essentially breaking down what's what. And I will, with the new current administration, there's a lot of things that I had to unpack in that. And even the conversation about the adoptees and the immigration status and looking at that, where people being sent back to their, you know, actual countries, they're born where they were born from, even though they've never lived there. You know, stuff uh, yeah, like that. That's like a crate. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole, that's other, a whole thing. other level. But it's just like, oh my yeah. God, there's so many things that's just. And it just impacts you. Yeah, it is. And it's again, feeling like, what the hell? How do I help? How am I here? Why am I here? It's a what very do do? personal exactly. story for you. And then how can I represent my people, but who are my people? People anyway, right? <laughs> right, right. Damn. Yeah. So it's a whole it's a whole thing. And I think again, um, one of the big more important things for me is to get uh, self care. And you know, you and I are talking about all the things that could lay me out. And I say that, you know, in the minute, like, depressive personality, I com- try to commit suicide, you know, a couple of times as a child because I was so freaking confused about the trauma that I was enduring and the triggering that was happening that I didn't understand it was happening. And my parents didn't either, and they didn't know, you know, they're very religious people, and we're really hoping that we could pray it away, and that just didn't happen, obviously. And with that, growing up and being, okay. This is not weakness and trying to like recover from. Okay, I'm I'm okay. This has gotten me. It's gotten me. I'm, I'm I can feel this. Let me let me feel this, and then let me go through this. And it's a whole different process of like, okay, I can't deal with this right now. Let's step back. Or I can deal with this right now, but I need help. I need people in my life. And it's just a whole and just embracing level. all of those elements, right, right? Right. And you know what? For what it's worth, the prayers did work because look at you now. Aww. You're amazing. Thank you. <laughs> She's my new best friend. She's cooking for me. So not to like bring you back into like some <laughs> crazy memory. But <laughs> now I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, you like, triggered trigger me. <laughs> Am I going to trigger you? No, I mean, all jokes aside, obviously you still love Korean food. I do. Oh how my can God. you not, right? Like, this is so freaking good. Yeah. But I, of course, made you your favorite Korean dish. I'm so uh, Chapche. I'm so excited. This is the only reason I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. I mean, of course, your bubbly personality, yeah. <laughs> of course, but, but I'm you not haven't lie. even you haven't even met me before. They, they were like, well, there's a chef who she gonna cook something? Yeah, okay, I'm okay. on. <laughs> yes. And you don't have to tell me anything else. <laughs> so Chapche, what is your memory on Chapche? When did you have it for the first time? See, that's a good question because I don't know. We don't even know. I don't know. I will tell you this was a food that I ate and I was familiar. Like, I was like, okay, I remember this. I remember this taste. It's an iconic Korean dish. Yes, yes. And I'm like, I remember what this tasted like. And it was a nice memory. It was one of those, like, man, I wish I could remember all the food that I Mm -hmm. used to eat. Like, the only memories I really have is um, that, the uh, black bean 
noodles. Jajangmyeon? Yeah. Yep. As well as uh, tons and tons of kimchi, Jajangmyeon is also a very, like, iconic Korean dish at, at that time. Yeah. During, like, the 70s and yes. 80s. Um, it was, it was like, a special dish that, like, so the good. children really loved. Yes, I loved it. Yeah. I remember being yeah. so excited eating that. Did you, do you eat it now mm, at all? No. So I haven't gotten that, because typically when I'm at... Uh, the Korean restaurants. I usually go for like bulgogi because yep. I love all of that mm-hmm. and all of the kimchi. But yeah, no. It was. It's funny because um, I was uh, telling Marcy, my producer, about this dish that you chose, chapche. Mm-hmm. Chapche is obviously a very traditional Korean dish, but no Koreans actually like it as their like favorite dish like growing up <laughs> I, I was <laughs> the, uh, growing up I hated chapte yeah. <laughs> a lot of Korean people don't like yeah. like chapte but a lot of white people right. and a lot of Americans love yeah. chapte it's yeah. like their favorite Korean thing and I know for a fact if I make this for Americans it's They're a excited. crowd pleaser yeah. it's yeah. like their favorite yeah. thing ever I'm so, definitely American yeah. when it comes to that I'm like yes please I'll eat that these are the things that I like and I love the last noodles I mean, it's great. It's it's sweet. It's salty. Yeah. It has all of those elements, like, well-balanced. Very American palate fitting. Yes. Right? Yes. yes. Probably, yeah. which is why I was like, oh, I'm cool with this. Okay, so chapche is one of those dishes. It's a party food. Mm-hmm. You know, you make it on, like, New Year's Day for someone's birthday. It's right. a celebration. I'm going to pretend like it's my birthday. It is your birthday, too. Yes. <laughs> not at all. I'm not You're trying to party today. But, but I'm eating it pretending like it's my birthday. Chapte is a glass noodle dish. It's made with sweet potatoes. And there's a ton of vegetables that's like sauteed. And it's in like it's dressed in soy, sesame yes. oil, some sugar. So it's like sweet and salty. It's delicious. And it's super so healthy too. It smells so good. Okay, so go for it, girl. Oh, my God. You're sitting here talking. I'm like, are we, are we done talking? Yeah, Can we're done talking. Now? We're Can eating now? now. We're eating. Wait, are y'all, y'all just watching? This yeah. is creepy, y'all. I want you to know It's this. not that creepy. Are you like, watching this, me eat? It's kind of weird. It's my favorite thing in the world. I love watching people eat. Oh, my God. I'm so happy right now. I'm talking with my mouth full. Mm. <laughs> also, you don't yeah. know this about me, but when I get really happy and start eating, I usually start dancing oh. and humming. <laughs> So I'm trying like, to trying to resist from dancing and humming. Whatever the fuck you want, <laughs> I'm girl. Like, dance. I can't, I can't be. Get up and I'm dance. Another food. I can't be that girl. Like people make fun of me because I get really excited. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat the food. I'm gonna eat the food. And you know what? I don't usually uh, eat with my guests, but I'm gonna I'm really, eat with you. I'm really glad you like, are. Because that 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 feels weird to me. I'm gonna relax. Also, slurping is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, because I grew up in the American culture, slurping is not a great thing. Yeah, you're not supposed to because it's considered rude. Right, right. And then, uh, yeah. In Asian culture, it's all about the slurping. It's important to slurp. Because it uh, brings the flavor. Yeah. I don't know how to do that, I'm not going to lie, without actually, like, just spitting out the food. <laughs> so I'm not going to try. Try. <laughs> you see me. It's your moment right now. Okay, I'm going to try. Slurping the food, and mm-hmm. if it all falls out, I'm gonna start crying. You're great oh, at it. So You're natural. That was not a natural. Don't lie to me, Esther. What do you think? Do you like There's it? So... Oh, I know. I love it. It's everything. I'm like gonna crave this for days. I'm gonna have to go to all the Buford Market places. And it's funny that you said like when people make this dish, they make like a shit ton of it yeah. because I didn't I mean I was trying to make a small portion but I think it's impossible to make a small portion of chapte <laughs> and I made this like crazy bowl of it and obviously all the leftovers right. are at Jess and Chad's place and, and they're, they're gonna, gonna be the most excited people forever mm-hmm. mm. I mean if you haven't encountered this dish I feel like it's a gateway Korean dish right. to like all Korean foods because it's just it's just so good. It's it's like I, there's no way in hell I could make this, but it feels so simple and it's delicious. It's so easy. Now you have to make it. Yeah. That's a challenge. Is it a challenge? Oh, cooking Korean food. I'm sure that's going to be another level level of <laughs> mental. So, one of the memories I do have growing up, my grandmother, my biological grandmother, owned a restaurant. Wow. Mm-hmm. So owned food a restaurant and bar smells and right. that sensory. That's why you have so right. much connection. And that to could that. be absolutely because I don't. I didn't realize it then. But yeah, I remember it was like a restaurant bar type of thing that she had. And I was always in the back hiding away from the adults. But smelling everything. 
probably mm-hmm. tasting. So that mm-hmm. was that's probably why you have such a connection to right. That's sens- great like it food. is an absolute like as we're eating this, I definitely am having a moment of like. Yeah, this is familiar, but foreign. It's definitely one of those moments of, like, this is a disconnect on each side of, like, this is a different life. So it feels disconnected um, and trying to figure out where the fuck did this memory come from? Where, what was it? So it's an interesting aspect for sure because, as you know, before you met me, I love food and I'm very excited about all the foods. Um, So part of that to me is really interesting that I have a connection, an emotional connection, because I'm not, I have heard that yeah. about chefs. Mm-hmm. It's not, all about, it's all about, a a, it's always about a specific memory mm-hmm. that brings you back to home right. and what that is. And for me, that's how I cook too. I'm, I'm, right. A lot of my food is obviously very traditional and it's a memory right. and it's um, a connection to my heritage. And yeah. I, I'd love to unravel one dish at a time with you right. if you, if you'd yes. like. Even Wait, if that, that means, brings out tears. I was going to say, are we going to do this as, like, future episodes, and you're just going to cook me more food, and oh, I'm just going to yeah. cry into it? <laughs> Fuck yeah, man. Someone fly me to New York. I'm going to eat all the food. <laughs> well, you have to visit me in New York, uh, and I would yeah. love to do this with you and, you know, go deeper. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, anything, especially when it comes to race, especially when it comes to trauma, any of that, there's so many facets to a person's story and the level of what it is, and then trying to understand each other on different levels it might not be the same reasoning or same uh past experiences but the the feelings and emotions are very similar and very very reminiscent of each other and i think that's really important and this is just a surface level and remember in the beginning of this episode i literally said this is a topic that i wanted to cover Mm -hmm. and it's probably going to happen multiple times in my series Mm -hmm. because this is just the first time and there's too many layers for us to cover right. in what 30 40 minutes right there's always a part two a part three and a part exactly. four exactly yeah. and again everybody's story is very very different whether it was a baby coming along and trying to find themselves and finding their family or not so yeah exactly. samantha thank you so much for sharing your story Absolutely. how can we find you and your podcast yes again it's stuff mom never told you we are with iheart formerly of how stuff works you can find us on the interwebs at Mom Stuff on Twitter, as well as Stuff Mom Never Told You on Instagram and on Facebook. Yay! Yay! Come see us. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Get Down with K-Town is a production of iHeartRadio and was created by our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis, and me, Esther Choi. Follow me on all social media at Choi Bites. And I'd also like to thank our producer, editor, and mixer, Marcy DePina. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. 
David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.